Today we are wrapping up a series entitled Written in Red with the simple goal of really just kind of to do this one thing, which is to listen, to listen to the words of Jesus and ask the question, in light of the things that Jesus taught, how should I now live? Like, in light of what the words in red tell me, how should I live? How should I live? That's the simple goal. And obviously, this is a question that I'd hope those who have committed to a lifelong journey of increasingly submitting all of life to Jesus would make. So, I do want to say, if you're kind of on the fence about whether you believe everything you've heard about Jesus and the Bible, I don't want you to feel like I'm asking you to be overly introspective. In fact, that's probably asking too much. At a minimum, if you're at least curious to entertain or maybe willing to reconstruct your experience with Jesus, the Bible, and the church, you at least owe it to yourself to ask the question in light of the things Jesus taught, how would someone who believed Jesus choose to live? Like in light of what Jesus taught, if there was someone who believed that what Jesus said was true, how then should that person live? And that's just a good question if you've ever wondered what a Christian should look like. And so at a minimum, I'm inviting you at least to entertain that thought. Now, last week we looked at Jesus' encouragement to those who want to be part of the kingdom of God. And if that's you, that's me. He gave us instructions for what that kind of life looks like. And that kind of life looks like this. It means asking. It means seeking. It means knocking. Continually asking of the Lord for his sovereignty in your life. Believing that he is more than powerful and that he is more than able to care for you, continually seeking the Lord, doing whatever is needed, whatever is needed to know Him more, understand His heart more, and repurpose your rhythms to live life His way more. And if it wasn't enough, Jesus told us to keep knocking, to continually knock. In other words, Getting back up when the realities of living in a world damaged by sin and temptations to live life for anything but God's glory tries to keep you from asking of and seeking from the Lord. Get up. Don't stop. Keep knocking. Because if you do, the door will be open to you. So allow me to ask you a question. In light of last week, if you were here last week, how is your asking going? How is your seeking going? Are you still knocking? Or have you been distracted? For those of you who may not know, Matthew chapter 7 marks the end of what Christians throughout history have often referred to as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Right, good. Five stars for you. Sermon on the Mount. I like to call it the greatest sermon ever preached because, well, it was Jesus, and I don't think anyone worth their salt will be like, yeah, I mean, Jesus' sermon was pretty great, but (laughs) did you hear me last week? I was on fire! What's up? Okay. Now, I have to admit that giving a message about the greatest sermon ever is kind of like watching one of those singing contests on TV 
where someone with an average voice is trying to cover a song originally sung by Adele or if you're older, Whitney Houston, right? You're like, nice try, but I like the original better. Okay, so, right, and so I, I get it. Trying to preach about the greatest sermon ever told, like, why don't you just read it? Well, we could do that. But while we're being honest with each other, uh, here is what I really want or hope to accomplish today. Um, really, I believe my calling as a pastor and preacher of the gospel is... And, and you can have a different opinion. That's so totally okay. But I have a deep conviction that my calling as a pastor, preacher, the gospel, whatever you want to label me, is not necessarily about wowing you with new theological information or inspiration. And I know there's some people that, like, that that's their cup of tea. They love it when they go to some type of gathering where they're like, I never knew that. Wow. That guy... That girl is so smart. How did they know that much about Greek? And I just want to let you know, in the post-information age, you can know literally everything most smart pastors know just with Google, okay? And, and so it's, it's beside that, lest we forget, the growth of the early church, by the way, happened in spite of a lack of great commentaries Leaders with no MDiv or charismatic presentations of the scripture with lights, fog, you know, PowerPoint, lest we forget the kingdom of God expanded greatly by just the simple preaching of the gospel and the invitation to follow Jesus. And that's what I hope to do today. I hope to present the gospel of Jesus and then invite us to follow. Maybe for some of you it's been a while and you've forgotten what it means to actually choose to follow. You just kind of follow. But today, I hope that you can renew your heart and your commitment to Jesus. In the same way, my goal and calling as a pastor, I believe, is to create environments that steward God's Word in such a way that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the stage is set for you and honestly for me to engage in the journey, because it is one, of being transformed by God's Spirit and sent out with power to accomplish the mission of being and making disciples. So with that said, I want to start us with prayer, and then we'll dive right in. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father in heaven, I desperately need your spirit to move in my heart today. We who follow you are in desperate need of your words your admonitions to lead us towards kingdom-mindedness, to lead us to repurposing our rhythms so that we are actually storing treasures in heaven and not here on earth. And so I pray 
pray that as I speak today, no matter what I've prepared, I pray that it would be received as truth and love. And may whatever I say, and may the intentions of what I am trying to say be pleasing to you, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 21, starting at verse 21. It says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Now, because that's pretty heavy, let me tell you a story. <laughs> uh, we have a running joke in my family that one of my relatives was a Division I athlete. The truth was, while he did go to a Division I school, the extent of his Division I athletic career was defined by his participation on the practice squad for his college's women's basketball team, okay? So, you know, we have the joke like, oh, he's a Division I athlete. Well, while he was on the practice squad. Practice squad? Okay, well, that's still good. Well, it was a practice squad for the women's basketball team. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Now, in all honesty, it was, it was really a cool gig. He not only got to go to the games for free, uh, but he also got to utilize the school's facility to continue engaging in a game that he grew up playing. He loved the game of basketball. So that was, that was really good for him that he can use these Division I facilities, right? And, you know, um, and, and on top of that, uh, here's the really cool thing. He got all of the uh, cool gear that the, the, the actual team got, like shoes, you know, pay, I mean, they were men's, obviously. He wasn't going to wear women's shoes and women's shorts. I mean, that would be kind of, well, that would look a lot like the 70s. Remember basketball in the 70s, right? Uh, but that's not cool anymore. So, so, but he got to get all like kind of the cool gear. So it was a really cool gig. Now, the thing is, if you search my nephew's name, um, Andy Hamilton, you can go ahead and try it, uh, you won't actually see him show up on any Division I rosters. You won't see him show up on any of the history of Division I basketball team rosters. Sure, his participation brought value to the program, right? He was helping the actual team get ready for their games. But at the end of the day, he was not an actual Division I athlete. That's because participating in the team's activities doesn't necessarily mean that you are part of the team, right? That makes sense. We can wrap our mind around that. Now, some of you grew up in an everyday, everyone gets a trophy. It's like, well, he was part of the team in spirit. His name still wasn't on the list, okay? So let's just put it there. He's okay with the fact he still has all the, he, he's okay that he wasn't on the team. In fact, he's probably, he'd probably be weirded out if he was like Andy Hamilton, women's Drake basketball team, right? So <laughs> that'd be a little weird for him. 
In the same way, Jesus was saying that just because someone appears to be participating in the activities of the kingdom of God, listen, just because someone appears to be engaged in the activities of the kingdom of God, it doesn't mean that they're part of the kingdom of God. So what, what then, how do we know who's part of the kingdom of God? Well, you need to be on the roster to be part of the team. And we, there's often the joke, if, if you're not really spiritual, but you don't even have to be spiritual. We all know about the book, right? Oh, there's your name written in the book. And who gets in the book? Those who know the Lord. And more specifically, those who are known by Him. These are the people who will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus was saying. So the question is, who are those who know the Lord? Well, Jesus actually tells us this by giving this illustration found in verse 24. And this is actually the text that I had in my heart. And let's read this together. Verse 24, it says this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, and acts on them, and acts on them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded the house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundations was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't, does not, does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the wind blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Here's a funny thing about commitments. <clears throat> commitments are easy to keep when they're easy to maintain. Do you ever know that? Like, keeping a commitment is really easy to do when it's really easy to do. Does anyone know what I'm saying? Am I, am I, am I, am, am I breaking it down pretty easily? Like, commitments are pretty easy when commitments are easy to maintain. But the true test of a commitment is not when things are easy, but when things get unbearably hard, Jesus said it like this, pounded and collapsed. Has your life ever felt pounded and you were on the brink of collapse? Jesus did not say, wisdom proves itself on how a house looks. Wisdom proves itself by its ability to have a 20 by 20 back porch with a slide out. Better yet, French doors. You know, wisdom proves itself by being able to have a great, a great curbside appeal. Is that what it says? No, it didn't say that. Jesus says that wisdom proves itself when righteousness is displayed. Because, because in spite of hardships. This is not at all different than what Jesus was trying to communicate when he started his sermon. Remember, he's ending his message, but do you remember how he started it? 
Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. It's just a few verses over, a uh, few chapters over, a few pages over. That's what I meant to say. Oh, come on. You can do it. There it is. Listen to what Jesus says. Starting at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward, your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, when Jesus gave this message, the idea of what a righteous person looks like was defined by their ability to obey certain commands and better yet, to walk around with an air of holiness. Like with the ability to, uh, if, if you understand how, how the old, the, the, the rabbis who rock around, they had their tassels and they had the literal scriptures. And, and then it's like this, there was this, 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 uh, this imagery of holiness that automatically was associated with, well, you must be holy. And what Jesus was trying to make clear with this Sermon on the Mount was that how we respond to suffering is what proves who it is we actually belong to. It's not what you're doing when you can have all the time you need to get your stuff together. It's not, it's not necessarily about how you're, you're, you're following all the rules when everybody is watching or when it's easy to follow the rules. But how we respond in the middle of suffering proves who we actually belong to. And here's just an interesting question to ask yourself if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Just if you, if you follow Jesus... Just entertain me with just this exercise. Think about the last time you really suffered. Like, think about the last time you really, really suffered. Think about that last time you were at your lowest. Think about that last time you were deeply hurt. Think about that last time you felt abandoned or persecuted. Think about that last time that maybe you self-destructed. And you took it too far. And you did what you knew wasn't good for you. Remember that time. Think about that time maybe you were overwhelmed with anxiety 
worry and fear. Think about that time when everything in life was spinning out of control despite all of your attempts to live a life honoring to Jesus. I remember mine. Do you remember yours? So, with that in your mind, let me, let me just ask this question. In the middle of that period of your life, where did your mind go? Like, where did your heart run to? Like, in the middle of all of that, what... What were the things that you strived for as a solution to your suffering? Go ahead, think about that. Like, think in the middle of that, what did I, where did my heart turn to for hope? Where did my mind go to for the solution for what I think my life needed? What were the things that you strived for, that you tried to gather in hopes of offsetting the realities of a life that was collapsing? Here's the funny thing. If you are honest with yourself and take that journey back into that deep, dark place and evaluate where your heart went in that moment, the answer to that question will give you incredible, incredible amounts of clarity on where the foundation of your heart lied, laid. Like if you're able to be honest with yourself, there is... A tremendous, I don't even need to give illustrations because you're smart enough to know where your heart went. And the answer to that question will let you know if you have been living wisely or maybe you've been tempted to live life foolishly. And here's the crazy thing about what Jesus teaches here. Most of us judge whether or not We or others are living foolishly by how our life looks as a result of our own actions, right? We say things like, look at that person. Look at who they married. Now their lives are falling apart. They must be foolish. Look at that person. Look at the job they decided to take, and now they're unhappy. I told them they're not going to be happy doing that job, and they took that job anyways. Now they must be what? foolish. Look at that person. Look at how they decided to spend their money, even though I told them not to do that, even though their mom told them not to do it that way, even if God told them not to do it that way. Look at how they're spending their money. Now they're broke. Look, they must be what? Foolish. The opposite is also true, right? We often say things like this. Look at that person. Look at that person that God brought them. Oh, they must be wise. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gotten a good thing from the Lord. Look at that job they landed. Look at that job they landed. That was a miracle. They must be wise. Look at how financially responsible they are. Look, they just have their life in order. (laughs) They must be what? Wise. 
And we credit ourselves as having built our life on a firm foundation because of the things in our life are going well. When, ah, and I'm going to mess with some of you, when in reality maybe we're not wise, maybe we're just lucky. Maybe you don't like that. Maybe we're not wise, maybe we're just privileged. Where are you going with this, Phil? Hold on with me. Can we be honest for just a quick minute and just admit that we as Americans, we live in a culture of privilege. Let's just admit that. We can admit that. It's okay. And in this culture of privilege, sometimes our pursuits of making a strong foundation for our life has nothing to do with our faith, but more than likely, it's a result of our selfish pursuit of our kingdom made possible by our privilege. Privilege? (laughs) Where are you going with this, Phil? Stick to the word. I like you better when you do that. Listen, it's easy to make it look like you're wise by pursuing a job you love and find meaning in when you have been blessed with the opportunity to have a college education. Something that only 6.7% of the world has. Like, you realize that. Easy. Pursue your dreams. I can say that to my kids. Because there's an amount of privilege in, in that reality. But even as I was talking to my mom about life in the Philippines and back in the day, and when you live in countries that aren't like ours, you don't sometimes get a choice. And this is not to say you, you don't get a choice of what you do. And this is not to saying that staying in a job you hate is, is more righteous. Please don't get me wrong, because actually I'm, I'm friends with some of you who've just had some job transition. I'm not saying that staying in a job you ha- hate is actually the more righteous thing. Sometimes that is the wise thing. But the truth of the gospel still remains that we should be able to work as unto the Lord no matter what the realities of your occupational life look like, especially if the reality of your life looks like something no one would choose to go through. This is what Paul was communicating when he said this in Colossians 3, slaves. When was the last time someone said, I want to grow up and be a slave? Nobody. What does Paul have to say? Slaves, obey your masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart. He said, we forget that first verse. (laughs) This was to slaves. And we go like, whatever I do, I want to be an entrepreneur. Whatever I do, I'm going to do it for the Lord, for His glory. We forget the context. This is to slaves. And to these slaves, Paul says, as something done for the Lord, not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. So according to Jesus, wisdom is not proved by the architectural beauty of a house sitting on a foundation. But wisdom is proved on whether or not it survives the storm. And what does Jesus say is given credit to whether or not a house survives 
a storm. (laughs) Hint, it has nothing to do with you. It's the foundation. So let me ask you again. Think about the last time life got really hard for you. Think about it. Think about that last season of life that can only be described as suffering. Where did your mind go? Where did your heart run to? What were the things you strive for as a solution to your suffering? And if this feels heavy, because when you look at your life at your lowest, you realize, like me, like me, you have often more than not looked more like a foolish person than a wise person. Here's the good news. You're listening. You're hearing. Like if in, in, in all of this, looking at what Jesus said, we find ourselves going, oh no. <laughs> I think my heart, I don't know. Is it built on the sand? Or is it built on the rock? You're listening. You're listening. And in this moment right now, you're hearing Jesus, and you can choose not to just hear Jesus' words, but act on them. This is the good news. This is what the Apostle Paul was trying to communicate in what we refer to as Romans chapter 2 after spending, if some of you know Romans, he spent all of chapter 1, basically most of chapter 1, reminding all the people he led to faith in Jesus. These were people he led to faith in Jesus. He would basically tell them about how offended God was by their sin. He talked about all the wrong things that that led God to, to the offense of what they were doing. And here's what he says to them after basically letting them know like, yeah, you were pretty bad. Like, you were, you were pretty bad. In fact, God, God, gave, God gave over to yourselves and to the lies of living. And this is what he says in Romans chapter 2. And he goes, don't you see how wonderfully kind? Because he goes back and he says, yeah, but God has saved you, right? Yeah. And then he goes, here's the reason why. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin. The good news is that if you're often ashamed of what is revealed in you, when you go through times of trouble, you are now in the know of what your life has been built on or what has been tempted to be built on. And you can turn from that. And you can build your foundation on Jesus. I sometimes wonder if the problem of understanding this simply, simple teaching of Jesus is that we as people were, were more focused on building impressive houses than strong foundations. Because life invested in building the house is quite exciting, actually. It's the life of events and 
activities. It's the life of accomplishments and accolades. It's, it's the life where the things we do, the things we build, can be seen and admired from the outside. It's the life of winning friends and influencing people. <laughs> but life invested in building a firm foundation, if I'm being honest, and at least from my experience, is much more difficult. It's a life of prayer, which maybe sometimes we forget to do. It's a life of confession, yes. If you have not yet recently confessed your sins to God, then you have sin which is unconfessed and unrepented for? Like, when was the last time you confessed your sin to God? Building the firm foundation is about rest. Some of you are workaholics. Keep going and keep going and going. And it's maybe not even about occupational health. You're just running to and from event because you feel like activity is at least where you feel most alive. But sometimes maybe you just need to... Rest. It's about discipline. It's about saying no to your flesh. It's about embracing what God said to do. Starting with the thing that you already know that God wants you to do, but you're like, I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know what God wants you to do. Well, maybe start with the things you already know God wants you to do. How does your life look up to that standard? Like, what are the things you already know? How's that going for you? Sometimes the devil's Scheme isn't to make you do what you know is wrong. Sometimes he just makes you distracted about doing the right things, trying to figure out, like, what are the things I'm supposed to be doing? What is it that you know God wants you to do? And how are you doing doing that? It's the life of being a brother and sister in Christ. It's loving our enemies. And it's doing the work of being and making disciples. This is the work of a firm foundation. It's the kind of life that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount when he taught us this, right? You remember? He taught us to be salt and light in the world. He taught us not to hate or lust. He taught us to tell the truth and keep our commitments, whether they're promises to other people or their marriage covenants. He taught us to turn the other cheek. He taught us to love our enemies. He taught us to be generous, to pray, and to fast. He taught us to store treasures in heaven. He taught us not to worry. He taught us not to be judgmental. He taught us to ask, seek, and knock. He taught us to take the narrow path. And he taught us to watch out for false teachers. This is building a firm foundation. When we listen... And we act. So as our musicians come back up to close us in a time of worship, I, I want to leave us with something that a pastor and seminary professor, um, Dr. Kent Hughes, he writes a lot of commentaries. And um, if you're really nerdy on that kind of stuff, he's, he's popular. But he wrote a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount that I love, and he wrote beautifully about this passage of Scripture, 
And I just kind of want to leave us with these questions that he asks regarding this part of Matthew chapter 7. And here's what he says. Do you know Christ? Or do you just know the vocabulary? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Or are you writing on your heritage? Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life? Can the character of the kingdom be seen there? Is Jesus alive in your life? And then he asked this question, which is the hardest one to answer. Do you love him? Do you love him? These are important questions, and they have nothing to do with lip service and style. I hope all of us will examine our hearts by the standards Jesus set down, and not by our culture or anything else in this world. May we, like the hearers of old, respond to Jesus' words. In Matthew 7, 28, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes or home church pastor. I want you to hear Jesus. That's my heart for each and every one of us, that you would hear Jesus. And I pray somewhere in the planning of your next week, month, goals you set for the next five years, ten years of your life, somewhere in there, if you love and follow Jesus, you have put some kind of priority to hear from Jesus. It's worth it. And your life depends on it. So get in the Word. <laughs> and then do. Do.